Um, great to see you. Lovely Look, to be um, here. Thanks for coming. Will, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're married to, yeah, to so, Louis. And uh, I'm pastoral chaplain at Holy Trinity Brompton, and um, I am married to Louis, and we've got three children. Um, so 11 months, six years, and eight years. And um, I've been in ministry for about 14 years now. I started off in um, Marlebone for four years. Then I was out in Harrow, northwest London, for six years. And I've been ministering at HDB. I'm in my fourth year now uh, at HDB. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, yeah, so to keep myself busy. And it's lovely to have you all here. Thanks so much for coming uh, from far afield and from nearby. I know it's a, these, your time is precious. And I, I pray that you'll find tonight a blessing mm -hmm. in some way. Well, just let's launch straight into it. I'd love, I'd love to know how you got into uh, this whole area of, of, of mental health and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and faith. Great. Um, so I guess I come from a family where mental health was definitely on the radar. And you, you may be one of those people. My grandmother was mysteriously absent a lot of the time. Um, there was always half a bottle of sherry around. It was always half a bottle. I didn't realize that was a new half bottle every day. Uh, and uh, there was a lot, of talks about, a lot of talk about a drug called Siroxat, which I always thought was a sort of, um, sort of something to do with arthritis, but actually it was, a, it was a kind of traditional antidepressant used to treat the elderly. And um, I would always notice my, my grandmother had like, quite powerful moods, and she was a bit of a matriarch, and she would sort of be in a mood, and then she would disappear and um, my mum and her sisters would sort of tiptoe around a bit, and then my grandma would come back strong, and she would be in great form. And actually, obviously, as I grew older, I realised that my, my, my grandmother really struggled with depression. And I saw vulnerability in my mum, um, and um, I went away on my gap year to school in North Wales, and um, actually my first experience of mental health was um, waking up in the middle of the night, sweating, just a cold sweat, shaking, um, not being able to breathe and uh, just totally freaking out. And, I, and I, I got another kind of junior house master from this boarding house I was working in, got him to take me to hospital. Because I went to hospital, I was actually having a panic attack, but I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, and I remember the, the doctors kind of putting a kind of oxygen mask on my face. And then after about half an hour saying, yeah, you're totally fine now. And me not really understanding what that was. Um, I worried my way through my sort of teenage years, and I guess that undercurrent of worry and anxiety, propensity towards that kind of emotional sensitivity, led me then to um, 2005 when I was working my first year as, my, I think most of my second year as a curate in North London, and I got wrapped up in the London bombings. Um, and that was really the sort of massive trigger for me to experience what became an acute anxiety disorder. So my, my sort of history was peppered with familial mental health issues. And I definitely had a propensity towards this anxiety, which I'd say was sort of a genetic um, part of my story. And then there's the kind of big event. Lots of people have a sort of, you know, a moment where the world kind of collides and then, then their mental health problems kind of manifest. Mm. Well, um, um, tell us a little bit about um, uh, sort of the lie of the land, I guess, uh, in, yeah. in sort of uh, in the church when it comes to yeah. mental health up until, you know, recent yeah, sure. history. Tell, give us a bit of a Yeah, a, so um, a <laughs> basically when I, when I had this experience, I was involved in the London bombings. I, I, I kind of ended up going under the cordon. I had a, a flat very close to Edgeware Road Station. I dropped my wife at the tube that morning. And about 10 past nine, I was walking past Edgeware Road with the bomb went off. 
Uh, I didn't know it was a bomb, obviously, and there was a few, it had probably gone off about three or four minutes before I'd actually arrived, and a few police officers had actually been at the station at the time, and they were clearly in a bit of a panic. There was a cordon that had gone up. I had my dog collar on. I kind of went under the, under the cordon like superhero, like kind of, so I was Superman, I was going to save everyone. I saw some pretty unpleasant things, and then I was sort of, I opened up this little hall, which is um, a little traditional church hall that we had for the, for the kind of triage slash police recovery sort of scenario, which went on for 24 hours, and we were kind of cordoned in, and then for the next five days. And, and I, I kind of dealt with, at one point, I remember I was terribly sick on the floor, but not in a kind of, I've got a tummy ache, much more in an anxious kind of way. And at the time, I just sort of thought, oh, I don't know what that was about, and kind of carried on. I struggled through the summer, and then when I came back to London, I had a couple of weeks off, I came back and actually sort of being in the tube and being around Edgeware Road, I really started to get these weird sensations in my body, so like cold hands, cold feet, I started feeling shaky, I, felt, I experienced what we call dispersonalization, where I kind of felt like I was looking at the world through, through glass. And um, it was pretty hideous, and I started having the panic attacks that I'd had, that I just had one when I was in Wales, and I was having like nine a night, so I wasn't sleeping either. And uh, I went to see my vicar, and I said, you know, I, uh, I've been to see the emergency GP at the hospital, and he said I was suffering from stress and anxiety. I went to see my vicar, who was also, you know, he was a friend, and I said, you know, I've been to see the, the GP, and he says I've got stress and anxiety. And he said, no, you haven't. You're just tired. I remember going, all right, okay, I'm just tired, okay. And I kind of trust, you know, trusted him, so I was a bit like, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe he's right, maybe I'm just tired. And then I saw the other vicar, and the other vicar said to me, I said, look, I've been told the doctor told me I've got stress and anxiety, he said, we need to pray the devil out of you. So then, so then he, the one vicar's telling me that I'm tired, the other vicar's telling me that I'm demonized. So the next thing, I, one of them's trying to sign me with the cross of Christ, and the other one's telling me to go to sleep. And um, you know, it was a really confusing time. And um, fortunately, a friend of mine who was at Cambridge with me, I knew, you know, we'd been, we stayed really close friends, and he was a consultant psychiatrist. So I called him up and I said, Rob, look, I've got, I'm in all sorts of bother here. I'm not sleeping, I'm like anxious, I'm depressed. I, I don't know whether to, the doctor wants me to take medication. I don't know if that's okay for me. Like, I, I literally thought my whole world was falling down. And all I got from the church, I felt, even though from people who loved me, was what I, I now would call mental health stigma. What I realized, actually, a lot of it's just incompetence, not to be unfair on them, but they just didn't have a clue how to deal with the situation. And um, I gradually recovered, and I guess I made a relatively smooth recovery. I still have a GAD diagnosis, so that probably won't go away. So I, I, still, have a propensity, I still have a propensity towards anxiety. But I've been generally well and certainly panic-free for about 10 years, which is, which is brilliant. Um, but when I kind of made the first part of my recovery, I suddenly I started looking around myself. We had a church at the time of about 1,000 people. I remember thinking, am I the only weirdo here? And then actually thinking, no, there's probably quite a lot of weird people here. And then sort of thinking, how can we... Like, if I got, if I got this experience, if, you know, I'm, I was like Cambridge-educated, you know, supposed to be bright as a button, you know, your superhero cl clergy person fixing everyone. If I, if I was going to crash that badly and then be diagnosed with a mental health problem, I was thinking, if I'm treated that badly, how on earth is everyone else being treated? 
Like it was like a total wake-up call. And then, I, and then I realized what we were doing to some of the people in our congregation. And I realized actually that wasn't just, I don't want to sort of denigrate our congregation, it was kind of a universal experience. Was that people with, particularly people with serious enduring mental health problems were bounced out of these congregations. So if you kind of, if you were depressed and you got prayed for, after about six months, people got bored of praying for you and started telling you it was your fault. Or if you were psychotic, you know, again, spiritual. And if, you, if your psychosis carried on, then you were resistant to God. You know? So it was like, I realized that, that actually it, was, it wasn't a positive picture for people with mental health problems at all. It was, it was a really negative picture. And that's when I started feeling, I guess God gives you a feeling of like injustice for the poor. My experience of the poor had always been like, oh, poor people haven't got any money. But I realized actually, my experience of poverty was like an emotional, mental poverty. And, and I'd say that's more stigmatizing than real poverty, than like as in numeric poverty. Like if, you're, if people perceive you as being poor mentally, that's a whole world of stigma. If people think you haven't got any money in your pocket, well, you're still a nice guy and hey, we'll help you out with a few quid. So actually, as particularly people who I met gradually then who had psychotic illness particularly, I was thinking, oh my goodness. And then I saw, like, Jesus' love for the poor. And there was some material poverty. There was, like, emotional poverty, spiritual poverty, mental poverty. And I think, I think, what are we doing? We've got to do something about this. Um, and sure enough, there was a whole load of people who wanted to do something about it. And uh, I guess God has a sense of humor. If you'd asked me, like, when I was 18, what sort of ministry I wanted, I would have told you I wanted to be an evangelist. And, uh, like, you know drive around at big rallies like Billy Graham. Um, if God had said you can have a ministry around the world to people with mental health problems, I would have run a mile. But now it's literally the most rewarding and blessed thing in my life. You know, I think, you know, if you gave me a red button to press to take away my mental health problems at that time as a catalyst, I'd say no, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Because actually your greatest vulnerability can become your greatest strength. And actually, like, I always think God's power is made perfect in weakness. And I want his power. Like, I don't want my foe strength, because that's, like, nothing compared to the power and strength of God. I want to know what the power of God is. And so my weakness is a manifestation of his power. That's super exciting. So I guess I've lost a power I couldn't wield for a power I am in awe of. Not that it's mine, it's his. That's, that's, that, you know, that, that's a potted history. Of, I guess where I'd say the church was at in 2005, in 2012, things definitely shifted for us. And we've been hammering on the door of the church, literally, for, we've been hammering on the door of the church for a solid six years, seven years, with nothing but resistance. Someone said to me, actually, um, Will, I'm really worried about this thing you're doing because people are going to call you the mental priest. <laughs> I'm thinking... Really? Wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, you've got to be really careful because people will pigeonhole you as being a bit weird. I remember saying, I, I am a bit weird. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's remarkable, this sort of, you know, there was a sort of stigma. Is it me? Oh, there's a storm. Pull, me, pull it out of my pocket. Oh, now there's a big storm going. Oh. Rumblings. So, well, and just to, um, you were saying just then about um, for a number of years sort of banging on the doors of the, of, of the church. This is mind and soul that you're talking about. Is yeah, I mean, I'm, mind and soul, what is mind and soul? Um, 
we, we became aware, I mean, I, I, I love theology, so I was looking at the Platonic thought and how that influenced the early church. And the Platonites, from about 400 BC, had a powerful view of the newtocracy, which was basically a hierarchy based on the acumen of the mind. So Platonite's view was that, if you like, intelligence would save you and that the sort of seat of the human nature was in the ability to be rational in thinking. And their kind of new world order was basically the idea around that the intelligent will win. Um, but what they did was they split out the body and the mind. And so you could be very carnal in the body and very intelligent and kind of erudite in the mind, and those two things weren't connected. And I guess the challenge that the church was, and Paul works very hard to reunite mind and body, but, but platonic thought has kind of existed in culture ever since. And so we have this sort of elevation of, of the mind and the seat of rational, the rational self is here. And we lose sight of the whole person. And I think Jesus called us back to something much more divine, which was this sort of unity of mind, body, and spirit. So we, we created effectively a think tank where we started thinking about how you could reconnect to the whole person instead of just saying, oh, this person is, this person is disordered in their mind, therefore we don't want anything to do with them. Saying this person is disordered in their mind, but they're ordered in their body and ordered in their spirit, that makes them still a precious child of God, therefore we want to celebrate the whole of them. I guess the mind and soul foundation was born around the idea of actually you can't separate the mind and the spirit. Actually, God is present in the whole person. We want to love the whole person. Um, and we, we, we gathered, um, initially it was just Rob and I, kind of when blogging was kind of something you did in your garage, <laughs> kind of like some sort of urban cool warriors online with like really gritty like emails and stuff about psychosis. Um, it was the start, it was the start. Um, now, you know, we, I don't know, it's just God's favor. You know, now we, we have a couple of million users in 26 different countries. Um, and we get to do cool talks in churches like this and spend time on doing stuff. I don't know, it's, it, it, like, it, this, this kind of exploded and then we were knocking on the door without any purchase. And then in 2012, I think after seven years of knocking, something really shifted. It was partly the Time to Change campaign with Sue Baker. You know, she, they, they, they did some great work at Time to Change in terms of changing stigma in the world. It was partly the death of Gary Speed, the footballer. You might remember, some of you remember, Gary committed suicide in his Range Rover outside his house. And he was kind of, he was just one of the great loves of football, really. He was, a, you know, guy was a genius and no one could get their head around it. And it sort of brought mental health into the public arena. And I guess in the church, Rick Warren's son committing suicide in 2012, like Matthew Warren, was a massive wake-up call to the US church because Rick's held in such high esteem in the US. I think people thought, wow, if, if that could happen to the Christian son, a US mega pastor, that could happen to my son or my daughter. And so church leaders stopped coming out with the same pat answers and started saying, actually, we need education. And you know, in a marketplace like this, you don't, someone doesn't just sort of pop up mental health ministry. Like one day it's the cool thing to do. <laughs> you know, if you, if, if you had a mental health problem, you're not going to like, someone says, oh, I've really decided today I'm going to start a mental health ministry. Mm. You just don't trust that person necessarily. And I think what God had done with us is he'd milled us through the hard yards of seven years of not getting anywhere. 
but actually when the door opened, there was a trustworthy place for people to go and actually say, I don't know, these guys have been around for a long time and this seems to make sense. And it, it, God, God was generous because he gave us time to think, think through what we really thought and also to pray and to study. And, and Rob's a great psychiatrist. And then we brought Kate Middleton on, which was quite funny before Kate Middleton became Kate Windsor because I was Wills and she was Kate Middleton. So we had, we had quite a lot of banter around that. Um, and she's a, she's, a, she's a doctor and a clin- clinical psychologist. And then we ended up gathering all of these um, all of these young associates who were studying psychology and psychiatry and, um, and some priests too, like me, who, who had a passion. Um, and I did, I'd done six years of, of psychodynamic psychotherapy and group therapy and had passion for, for the kind of therapeutic and also you know, bringing together some of the challenges of the fact that Freud and Jung and Klein were so sort of enemies of the state as far as the church was concerned. I was going come on, this is crazy. There's some real wisdom here. Like, it would be like saying every vicar around the world is going to agree with every vicar around the world because they've got exactly the same ideas. Of course they don't. It doesn't mean there's not something credible to find. And, you know, I felt we need to like, re-examine some of, mm. some of that. And, yeah, it's been fun. Fantastic. And there's a website? Um, yeah, what can Mind we the Soul Foundation. There? So, uh, I mean, I don't know. I like this... <laughs> There's thousands of articles. Some of them are better than others, I've got to be honest. <laughs> you can tell the ones I wrote when I was in a grump or like... Um, there's lots of videos. Uh, there's podcasts. Uh, there's, there's something for everyone, I think. We've tried to... We're just actually just moving now into geriatric mental health. So I've just, I've just made requests that we... We've just brought a board with, a, with, a, with a, someone who specialises in geriatric mental health, just because we see that the ageing population's mental health is also important to God. So we want to kind of move in that direction a little bit. Um, the foundation is a think tank. We, 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 we try and engage really broadly, and we've got a, a Facebook group and a Twitter feed as well. I think there's about 6,000 Facebook members. There's a lot that happens on the Facebook group, just because people with mental health problems or people with an interest in mental health like to communicate a bit more live. Um, and we're trying to lobby the church. I think, I think it's hard. The church is like an oil tanker. You know, you can turn the wheel so many times and it like turns one degree. You know? But I think the more people who are standing on the deck on one side going, no, we're leaning over here, the more likely the boat's going to turn. And so the voice, the collective voice of the church. I mean, really, one in four people in the UK should have an interest in this work. And, and, and actually, really, everyone should be if they actually listen to what Jesus is saying. Um, but we want to kind of create energy, I guess, to, to see change. Uh, the Mental Health Access Pack, which is mentalhealthaccesspack.org, we did with Livability, which was the Shaftesbury Society, which was basically to create an access pack for, primarily for church leaders and pastors so that they would have excellent psychiatric and theological material on every single disorder that, you, that might manifest in their church experience and then to be able to treat the person with dignity in the round uh, and to be able to approach a person with a theological and a psychological response. Because what, what we saw was, you know, that the old adage was, oh, we just need to pray more. Either we need to deliver you from your problem, which obviously assumes the old stigmatizing classic that, that all mental health problems are basically the result of demonic activity. 
or, or it's an actual issue of obedience. So you basically need to think harder, which is pretty hard if your thoughts are slightly disordered or if you happen to be slightly depressed, lack motivation because you're depressed, which isn't obviously your fault. It's just part of the problem. Um, so that was an issue. And, and, and then there was this, the general confusion. So we wanted to say, look, leaders, get involved. And I think most Anglican churches now in the UK are using that. We, we wanted to spread, to spread further. It's just a free resource, but we, we've, been, we've been writing that with some really great team. So that's good. And I don't know what's next for us, really. I mean, we want to make an app in 2018. I think partly because we're getting old and we want to be cool still. Because <laughs> like when we started off, we probably would have made an app, but now we're just like quite old and just feel like we should make an app to stay relevant. Um, but I, I don't know, I mean, at the end of the day, I just, I feel it's a massive privilege to talk about this stuff. And I just love the people that God's put in front of me. I just think, you know, the most amazing and courageous people I've ever met are the people with mental health problems. Like people who have battles before breakfast, you know, I, I, I like Bear grills, climbing mountains and all that jazz. But there are people who deal with far greater fears every day and they don't climb mountains. They just go to work. Uh, you know, some of them don't even make it that far and they've still scaled Everest. Um, and that's, yeah, they're just brave, you know, and just amazing. And I just want to honour them, I guess, with the work that I'm doing. And if I get a chance to represent them in any way, then that's a privilege for me. And I, I pray God would, you know, keep me humble in doing that and just, just keep seeing the individual and thank God for them. Yeah, that's fantastic, Will. Um, you mentioned a couple of times, and even in your experience, this uh, um, sort of the vicar experience and offering to pray for you and deliver you. T tell us, I mean, it's a sort of common question. I know we were talking earlier, um, but... Uh, is all, you know, that question is sort of all mental health issues related to spiritual forces in yeah. some way? I mean, when you look at the whole picture, you realise in part where the stigma comes from. Um, there's no doubt that in physical medicine, there's always been an assumption that there's been some spiritual ends to some of the illnesses and diseases that people carry. But there's equally been the view that many things can be resolved in the physical. And mental health has kind of lagged behind our approach to physical health by hundreds of years. So whilst we were sort of identifying flus and plagues as being the outworking of various clear viruses and bacterias, we were making assumptions about and in, invisible diseases as being the result of spiritual forces. I can kind of understand where it came from, but I would say that in 99% of instances, there's absolutely nothing spiritual about a mental health problem. I say 99% of instances because in 99% of physical instances, there's nothing spiritual going on. But it would be foolish to say that there's never anything spiritual happening in the world. That would be to say that God doesn't exist and there is no kind of enemy. Um, I don't believe that. As a Christian leader, I, I know that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. Interestingly, the psychiatric community doesn't believe that either. And um, prayer for healing has been part of the repertoire of psychiatric services inside the NHS for hundreds of years and still goes on today. So the NHS actually have invited Christian leaders and regularly do invite Christian leaders in to pray for clients who aren't making any progress. 
Interestingly, Rob tells a story of one gentleman who, who, who was in a psychiatric unit, a secure psychiatric unit, who was making absolutely no progress. I mean, lots of people might be saying that they're Jesus or Muhammad or the Pope. It, that's just part of a psychosis. Often there's sort of religious imagery involved. But this one particular person wasn't making progress. And they had a client case review. And this chap went around the room and told every clinician something that only that clinician would know, including, you've had an abortion, you're cheating on your wife, and then to Rob, what do you want with me, Jesus? Which is quite remarkable. And out of the thousands of clients that Rob might treat, that was pretty remarkable. Now, here's one example of one person for whom spirituality was part of the mix of their lack of wellness. But for thousands of other people, they're unfairly stigmatized with the understanding that they, they, their issues are, are the result of some sort of supernatural force, and they're just not. The, the other thing I often come across is people's assumptions that Jesus' deliverance of the Gadarene demoniac is actually Jesus healing someone of schizophrenia, which I just think is remarkable for people who take the Bible seriously, that they would actually reinterpret Jesus' healing of people from demonic forces as just being an explanation made by mental health. Seems amazing, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, it was, if it said, you know, Jesus calmed the storm, no, he didn't really. Jesus was actually just having a bath and he, like, he stopped moving around. So the water stopped lapping. People would be like absolutely having a fit. They would be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're reinterpreting scripture in that diminishing way. That is disgraceful. But somehow you can take an incredible work, which particularly Luke as a gospel writer, tried very hard to demonstrate Jesus' power over the, 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 the forces of evil to actually help people to understand that Jesus was the Son of God. He had power over the demonic. He had power over the enemy. To, to diminish that, to say actually Jesus had power over a, you know, neurochemical imbalance in someone's brain is, I just think, abhorrent. But not only does it diminish Jesus' power, it also stigmatizes anyone with a mental health disorder because suddenly, you know, people want to cast out their, you know, their increased dopamine into pigs and cast them off a cliff as if that's going to make a difference. So, you know, I would say to people, actually, demons, demons cannot be medicalized. You cannot medicate a demon. And imagine if you're a demon and then suddenly someone comes along and goes, here. I've got some antipsychotics. I'm going to feed them to you now, and that's going to make you go silent. Of course, that's not going to make a demon go silent. It's ridiculous. So, if you could, if you can feed a demon, you know, antidepressants or antipsychotics, and they suddenly go quiet, clearly it's not a demon, because it doesn't work like that. You can't. How can you possibly give them medication if they're a supernatural force? It seems to me anyone who responds to medication is not demonized, because why would they respond to medication otherwise? It's madness. That's real madness to make that sort of assumption. Um, and I, I don't know. I get a bit steamed up about it. But I get steamed up about it, I guess, because, again, it's a justice issue. You know, it's like Hollywood. I could get steamed up about Hollywood because they do terrible things to people with mental health problems. You know, amazing the sort of assumptions that people make about people, particularly with seriously injuring mental health issues. You know, that, yeah, of course, 
occasionally there is someone who his illness causes them to manifest in a violent way. But um, these are extremely rare. Like the number of people who the number of people with schizophrenia who are assaulted outweighs the number of schizophrenics who've ever assaulted anyone, something like a thousand to one. Is that even worth noting those people with psychotic illness who've assaulted someone else compared to the number of people with psychotic illness who've been assaulted? Mm -hmm. And actually, even like up to about 60 years ago, the plight of people with serious mental health issues w w was absolutely horrific. Like, you know, people who had mental health problems were, were abused in every way. Um, I went to visit Bedlam for, um, I did um, that um, Songs of Praise. It was just amazing wandering around what was Bedlam and just thinking about what went on there, that people would come in to watch people who had mental health problems. Um, they would be, you know, treated the most, I mean, I wouldn't even want to set a trigger warning off for anyone here, because it's just horrific. So we need to restore dignity to God's creation and every one of these, everyone is precious. Uh, and we need to sort of demonstrate their love to them and reduce you know, stigma on every level. Well, it's fantastic stuff. And um, I mean, you've touched on it already as you've been talking, but there's a number of churches that are present here, as you know. And um, I just love, how would you, uh, as you traveled around, spoken to different churches, um, what, are, what are sort of some of the common uh, issues in churches when it comes to handling mental health and what are some of the solutions? Well, firstly, I want to say thank you so much for coming and representing your church. You know, I, I, I lo it's so exciting. I'd love to, you know, it's gathering like 60, 70 people in the room from one church is a privilege. Gathering 60, 70 people in the room from about 10 or 15 different churches is a huge privilege. So I'm just so, so thankful to you for coming, especially you who came from Coventry. That's special blessings on you. Um, I guess the fact that you're here is hugely exciting because you can make a difference in your church. The common issues are always, I mean, they're, they're often pastors' misconceptions and they're hard sometimes to overcome. But one of the challenges of being a pastor and a leader of a church is that you're so time poor. And so we've ended up, I think, and I've been guilty of this too, you know, you, you minister to the sort of masses to try and basically hit as many people as you possibly can who are as easy as possible, you know, who are going to be receptive and, you know, just have no problems. And, and part of you is sort of hoping, oh, that, that no one time-consuming is going to come and see you. And then if you do give your time, then there's sort of often a resentment that creeps in, like, oh, I can't believe you're back here again. And, you know, actually, well, this is kind of a long struggle for me. Um, and so this impatience. And I think sometimes as church members, we can look towards the leader too much to resolve the issues or to, or to support the pastoral needs of the church more broadly. So I think one thing that we've really encouraged churches to do is to gather together people who have a heart for people with mental health problems. They often include people with mental health problems, unsurprisingly. And actually, many people in mental health services also have mental health problems themselves. Because it tends to be that the area that you've received compassion and healing is the area where you want to give compassion and healing to others. So we often kind of call, call on churches to gather a core group together. And then to just to meet regularly, to meet once a month or, you know, to have, gather, to have a meal. And then to try and be just on the lookout for people who are struggling. 
And I, I really want, I mean, Simon Sinek at the leadership conference talked about game theory, which I thought was fascinating, because again, I was like, totally, sounds so cool. But he was talking about the difference between infinite games and finite games. In infinite games, the purpose of the game is to keep the game going. But in finite games, the purpose of the game is to get to win the game. And I think with mental health problems, we've often approached a finite problem in a, with an infinite, with a, an infinite problem with a finite solution. Mm. So we've said, I want to fix people with mental health problems in my church. Now, that, that makes someone with a mental health problem a, a problem to be fixed, not a person to be loved. Mm. So you hear these horrible phrases, oh, that person's schizophrenic. What's a schizophrenic? Like, it would be like saying that person's a virus. Like, you wouldn't call a person a virus. Why would you call a person a disease? It's, it's horrific. So we've, we've labeled people a finite problem that we're going to fix when we should see someone as an infinite child of God who've got an eternal future, who we're going to celebrate and encourage and love on their journey. Now, the, the reality is that you know, yes, you can get well from mental health problems. I'd say I'm largely well. Some days I'm not so well. Some days I'm not great. But I'll keep on battling away, and my identity is not that I've got GAD. Sounds like horrible. <laughs> I've got GAD, but I'm not GAD. Yeah. If, you, if you have a serious and enduring problem, you, you might have to take medication for life. And you might struggle, you know, you might have occasional seasons of deep depression or sometimes delusion or flat effect or even hallucination. If the church sees you as a problem to be fixed, that's a pretty depressing picture. If the church loves you into being, statistically, in the body of the church, as part of the community, you'll do better. Because community is a core part of the healing and recovery that people experience in their mental, within their mental health. We know that people with mental health problems who are part of the church community will live longer and live a fuller and happier life. And that's apart from the spirituality. Yeah. So we need to move, we need to shift our vision for people with mental health issues from being a finite problem to be fixed into an infinite person to be loved. I think when we do that, the churches will be amazing, be the amazing places that God really intended them to be. Mm. But we have to do it patiently. We have to try and do it by educating, often upwards, educating our leadership. We have to show, I think, also the spiritual purpose of what we're doing. I run a homeless shelter on Wednesdays and Fridays in Kensington. We have... We have 120 or so clients every single day, day we open. I would say 90% of those people who attend have mental health problems. And so many of the culture amongst our volunteers, and certainly between, among, in, within our church towards those people, is how can we get these people fed, clothed, and out off the streets? And I'm like going, unless we address their mental health problems, we got nothing. You know, unless we deal with their addictions, we got nothing. Because actually behind, so I mean, of, of our offender population, over 70% of our offender population have mental health problems. People talk about rehabilitating the ex-offenders. Well, we ain't going to do it unless we deal with their mental health issues and actually support them when they come out of prison and look at their mental emotional health. You drill stuff down, you start seeing mental health is poverty in so many parts of life. And 
when church leaders and when church cultures respond with a view to saying, oh my goodness, this is fundamental to our ministry, that's when we'll really see significant shifts in the way we're investing, I think. It's deeply challenging and inspiring stuff. Um, well, it's fantastic to hear you speak. Um, we've got a moment for a, uh, for a few questions from the floor, and, um, and then I know Will's going to uh, zone in a little bit uh, on a particular subject, so, but after, after we've had some questions from the floor. So uh, if you've got a question, uh, Becca, I might need your help handing out the mic. So if you've got a question, raise your hand, and Becca will come around. It's great. Thank you. Let's leave it here. Hi. Um, thank you, Will. That's a really amazing talk. I love your passion for um, wanting to reduce stigma around mental health. Um, so I'm a trainee psychologist, and I also have my own mental health problems. And I suppose my question is, it might be a bit specific in terms of kind of thinking about in the therapy room, I often struggle with, because you said, you know, 99% of mental health problems aren't, they aren't spiritual, which mm. I understand because my whole job is helping people make sense of their story and experiences and how they've come to end up where they are. But I often struggle with how much kind of faith should be in, in the room and part of therapy, because it's obviously not part of my training as a therapist, because it's just not yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. in our kind of NHS training programs. So I just wanted to know what your view yeah. was on it. It's such a helpful question. Thank you. Um, you know, I think that great therapy is great therapy wherever it comes from. I honestly do. I've got to be honest with you. I often point people to non-Christian therapists because... I want them to have a, I want them to have the best experience of what therapy looks like, and I don't want them to really experience any shortcuts to recovery. Now that sounds a bit harsh, but sometimes you've got to ask yourself, would a miraculous healing be the right healing for this person? Now, if someone, if someone had miraculously healed me in Jesus' name, like 12 years ago, would I be sitting here talking to you about mental health right now? No, I don't think I would. Um, we often say if you experienced a miraculous healing in mental health, it would take a lifetime to work out your journey to recovery. And actually that journey or that, in, that story interrupted could actually be a, a sticking point for you rather than a sweet point. And... Um, God will use you, and the incarnate presence of Jesus is within you as you perform your best therapy. And there is absolutely no need for you in the, ther in, the, in the therapy room to be trying to do more than just being the incarnate presence of Jesus. And I would just be saying to you, just deliver your best therapy. And you know, with Christian therapists, if there's, if there's one part of your therapy which can really excel it's always going to be your insight because I just believe that the Holy Spirit gives a special insight to Christians. You know, that, that there's... A, you're, all, all great therapy is based on, great, on the great insight of the therapist. And I just think the exciting thing I've seen from 
therapists who've trained right and then applied good medicine and good practice has been, if anything's been sharpened, it's been their insight. Where I've seen evidence of bad therapeutic practice, it's often because faith has been used as a blunt tool. And it's amazing. I, I, um, I, was, I'm just, I just had to... I, I wrote the presentation for um, a big diocesan thing on mental health, and I was... It was, it's kind of about the theology of mental health. But I was looking some popularist books. I'm not going to name any names because it would be, it would be wrong of me. But I was looking at some popularist books about Christian recovery. And it was amazing. I read the phrase, God is positive. So to be in the flow with God, you have to be positive too. I was thinking, wow. It's amazing that we have to be positive because God is positive. I was thinking about Job. Thinking... It's not striking me as being that positive, really. You know, I was thinking about Elijah saying, kill me now, God, I've had enough. I'm thinking, that's kind of not that positive. I'm not sure about this. Um, you know, I, I remember reading someone saying that, uh, you know, that, that the devil uses depression uh, as a way of keeping Christians in the pit of despair and despondency. Thinking... Wow, didn't know depression was a tool. Um, I thought it was a symptom. You know, it, 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 and it, it, it's, it's assumptions that are made like that, where it's like, again, I sort of, you know, people, you hear people saying, this, oh, I cut this off in the name of Jesus. Okay, hold on a minute. This is like not a sort of emotional amputation. Like, this person's created in the image of God, how can we treat them as a whole person? Would you, would you tell God to cut their spirit off in half and just keep the bit that was... You know, yellow and not the bit of purple. So the journey to healing, I think, is a gift. And I think what we have to do is help people to embrace the journey for as long as it takes. If you told me I'd spend six years doing analytical psychotherapy, I would have just laughed. You're joking. I mean, to, you know, it's, I think therapy is, the, is a gift to us. And so you're a gift giver. My encouragement is just keep giving the good gift and let God do the rest. Another question. Sorry, I won't be so long-winded. Hello. Um, I'm assuming that you are thinking that it's, there's a genuine statistical increase of mental health issues, not just a, a more openness to reporting. Would that be correct? Well, I have a question off the back of that. That is a very, very good question. And my heart wants to say yes, but my head is always struggling to know whether or not the statistics we're currently seeing are a blip or whether they are, they are part of a bell swing and there is a genuine acceleration in, 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 in the number of people with mental health problems. Okay, so if that's true, hmm. I, I don't have an opinion that I'm yeah, asking yeah. genuinely. So if that's true, do you see any... Uh, you must see some large underlying patterns that I don't completely describe it, but, you know, just coldly, like there's a cold description, there's mm. your problem, fixed. Mm. But do you see any large uh, philosophical, spiritual, social um, uh, underpinning to yeah. what could uh, give reason for an increase? Yeah, so, uh, I, a I simplistic exactly question. You, yeah, I understand exactly where you're going with this. What, what, what I'd probably go back to is, so I'd say, go back to Greek or Roman culture, 
so pervasive cultures of, of near history, so not going back as far as the Babylonians and Mesopotamians, but, but looking at Greek or Roman culture, what do we see around mental health within those cultures, which effectively weren't Christian cultures? Well, not a lot. What we know is that pharmacological, if you like, disorders, um, disorders of brain structure were probably as prevalent as they are today. Um, ones that seriously injuring mental health problems which had um, genetic causation probably were prevalent as they are today. But which particular disorders might, might we see an increase in in this particular era of our lives? Well, I think the likelihood is there is, is, is actually against is, is anxiety and anxiety-based depressions. And possibly some of the manifestations of those depressions, which would subgroup as self-harm um, and eating disorders. I mean, these things have always existed. You know, it's not like self-harm is a new issue. It was definitely there was the Romans had issues with self-harm. <laughs> like, but but why is there prevalence of these things? Is there a correlation to any clear social factors? I would always go back to the, the breakdown of community, that actually isolation we know. Now you can only say, look, these factors accelerate people's negative experiences as far as mental health is concerned. We know absolutely categorically that abuse has a foundational impact on people's mental well-being. We know that the breakdown of community has a foundational impact on people's mental health. We know that isolation is a key factor in negative outcomes for people with mental health problems. Uh, we know that um, certain dietary issues can have an impact on people's mental well-being, as obviously substance abuse we're aware of, particularly certain sorts of skunk cannabis and alcoholism. All these things have a negative impact on people's mental well-being. Stress, we know, and we understand in increasing measure, has a very negative effect on people's mental health. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to look at society today and say, we, ha we are living in a stress epidemic. We are becoming increasingly isolated as a population. We are working harder and faster and for longer. We are overstimulated. Our diets are poor. And our opportunity to talk about how we feel is being diminished. So is there a, is there a correlation? I think it would be very hard to suggest not. And actually, the UK is the self-harm capital of Europe. The fact that the statistics around self-harm are so pocketed nation by nation shows you that something must be happening in certain places which isn't happening in others. So I think we have to kind of look at it objectively and say these statistics would be uniform across Europe if everyone was, you know, if it just happened to be a blip. The fact is that we're doing certain things in certain places which are propagating this, these kind of problems to a greater degree. Again, it, it's more proof that these things are generally not spiritual because if they were, it would be happening uniformly and it's, and it's not. Human factors are definitely involved and we don't model it great. 50% of, of clergy, well, over, just over 50%, 50%, I think 52%, the EA survey came out with, of pastors in the UK have experienced stress, depression, or claim to be close to burnout. So the model we're offering in churches is actually not a great one.
because the leaders who should be promoting mental health are often on the edge themselves. Sorry, this again, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, this is a difficult question to answer. Time for a couple more, yeah, uh, this gen gentleman in the middle. Good evening, Will. Good evening. Um, my dad suffered with schizophrenia. Do you think it's hereditary? That is a very good question, and I, I would want to say to you, don't be anxious. Everyone who, asks, everyone who has a parent or a relative who has a seriously enduring mental health problem are nervous about the potential that they might also be impacted by it. You suffer, okay. Well, I was gonna say, don't be nervous. There is a 10% statistic, uh, and so it is hereditary. Um, again, with schizophrenia, the view is that there is a probably a latent gene issue, and that, have you got any siblings? You haven't, okay. Well, then you were, you were unfortunate. That you, but you, if you had siblings, the likelihood is that whilst one of you might, you might all carry the gene, only one of you might have the trigger, if you like, which leads to the development of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a difficult diagnosis because actually it's not really a diagnosis, it's just a collection of symptoms, as you know, and some are active and some are flat. Um, but you're here tonight, and it's great to have you here. And the good news, as you'll know, is that with the right medications and therapies that the outcomes are increasingly good and positive for people with schizophrenia, so it's great. Thank you for being bold and outing yourself, and you're just a great sign that stigma is breaking down. What's your name? Paul, welcome to you, Paul. Thanks for being here tonight. It's a real honor that you've come, so I appreciate it. Yes, gentlemen here. Thank you so much for your talk this evening so far, Will. Um, I haven't even started yet. This is, <laughs> this is just the preamble. So what, um, what I was thinking about when you were talking was the relationship between people's faith and their health and how often it's such an important part of them um, and often their healing process. And when we look at physical disease, um, for example, an individual with cancer or a family member who's perhaps very ill, when they die or when they get a terminal diagnosis, for example, it can affect their relationship with God and their relationship with faith. Um, and I was wondering what your experiences were with Christians who were of faith or are of faith and how their mental health might lead to them questioning or mm. um, being perhaps discontent with the existence of God and yeah. their own faith. It's a really, really helpful question. Thank you for asking it. I, I've done a lot of chaplaincy in hospitals over the years. Actually, I, when I was training, I spent eight months working in a senile dementia clinic, which was fascinating because he was, in, it, it broke my heart really, because he was, he were sort of 70 old people in various states of mental degeneration. And I felt that we'd lost them but my, my evangelical spirituality had lost them. God hadn't lost them. I remember thinking, all these people are still alive. God is still here. Yet, because I don't believe that these people can, if you like, make personal protestation of Christ's saving power and acknowledge the propitiation sacrifice of Christ on the cross, something's, got, something's gone wrong. Um, 
God showed me that actually God was still very much present with, with these people. And some, somehow more so. I mean, I, there was a lady who couldn't talk or do anything, but when I sang hymns which, but badly, she, she amazingly would start singing with me. And she could sing hymns, but she couldn't talk or speak or sing anything else. Um, and there was a gentleman who used to fit all the time. He was in a padded bed. And I, I found that when I went in and just prayed that the power of God's presence would come upon him, he would just lie perfectly still and would just be completely at peace. It was amazing. It was like a trick. I remember thinking, I mustn't do this too much. This is, this is wrong. But then thinking, no, God's in charge. It's not going to happen every time. Um, there, was a, there was a Polish lady who had been living in England for 40 years, but because of her degenerative um, dementia, she lost all her language. And, and, and she'd been put in a separate room because she used to scream and shout at everyone in Polish. And I prayed for her for eight months. I used to go in her room every time I went to the hospital. And it was like slightly like, put your fingers in your ears and pray, and then leave, it'll be okay. And I thought, God, this Polish lady, you know, who shouts at me in Polish every week, have you really, you know, do you, is, is anything going on here? You know, the last day I visited this Polish lady, I was just leaving, and she said, you're a very good boy. You pray for me every week. And then she started shouting me again in Polish. Um, I guess it showed me that God shows up, and God shows up whether we are angry with him or disconnected from him or struggling in our spirit. I, I love the fact that God shows up to Elijah. You know, Elijah's saying, oh, God, kill me now. God doesn't say, you disgrace to the faith. How dare you, like, deny your life? Don't you know who I am? I'm God. God, like, comforts him and feeds him. Like, God takes the ultimate sort of biopsychosocial approach to recovery. He's like, you know what you need? You need food. You need rest. And you need therapy. And, um, you know, I think, I think about it. I mean, if you, if, you, if you go into a good psych ward and someone on admissions will often ask a patient, when did you last have a meal? Because you've been manic for four or five days, and actually you're just starving hungry. You need to eat, and then we'll talk. It's funny how God, God deals like in the, in the fullness of a person, and that's amazing. I, I've come across people who are super angry with God, but more often than not, where mental health is concerned, I've come across people who just want to be loved. And they know that God is love. What they're looking for is a church that's going to show them the love of God. And that's the sad disconnect. That's why I do what I do. Because actually, if we could connect sufferers with the love of God through the love of the church, then we'd see an incredible picture. No one's ever said to me, I mean, maybe they will after this, but no one's ever said, oh, I, I don't believe in God, now I'm depressed. Like, people have said to me, I struggle to feel God when I'm depressed. And there are actually neurological reasons why that's the case, because of the way the brain works, that you experience flattening of your emotions and you can often feel a, a sense of disconnect. But actually, if you ask people who are seriously depressed, well, they feel the love of their family, they don't feel anything. So that's quite frustrating. But actually, again, if you want to find a champion of faith, find a champion of faith who's depressed, because they don't get anything back, but they keep on trusting in the love of God. Like, 
I find it amazing. <laughs> you think of, think of it like Spurgeon. Like the guy's the most, he's like so depressed. If I had a beard that, that was that cool and I looked like a hipster, I would have been chuffed with that. But um, Spurgeon's like seriously depressed, like most of the time. And yet he preaches the most amazing sermons about the love of God. That is faithful preaching when you can't feel it. Like William Cooper, like who writes the Olney Hymns. You know, he's, he's like, he didn't write Amazing Grace, but I reckon he probably did. And he just like handed it over to John Newton so John Newton could have a bit of glory. Because actually John Newton wasn't really a great writer at all. And William Cooper was like the best writer ever. So he, like Cooper tries to co- commit suicide like twice. I think it's because... It's because Newton saved his life that he probably gave him amazing grace and said, look, this is probably pretty good. It will go down pretty well for a few hundred years, so you, you maybe should put your name to this one. But, but you know, when, when, when Cooper's, like, Cooper's like seriously depressed, so he literally kill, tries to kill himself. And yet Cooper writes the most incredible songs about the love of God, despite the fact that he's suffering from flat effect and can't feel the love of God. It's remarkable. You think about Florence Nightingale, she's got bipolar. So she's like... She's struggling between, like, man, I don't think, I, I don't, from her, I don't get the sense that, that Nightingale really experienced euphoria. She just, she experienced, like, manic, which was probably pretty good for the people she was caring for, because she, like, went and went and went and went. But then when she'd gone through the manic phase, then she had to, like, pick up the depressive phase, and that was really hard. Can you imagine how hard that would be when you've been caring for everyone? You've got to carry on caring for everyone when you haven't got that same energy. But she, like, she's manic depressive, and she's, like, loving and caring for everyone, despite, again, she probably can't really feel that love and care. And then you've got John Bunyan, who's written Pilgrim's Progress, which everyone thinks is amazing, but you haven't read his previous book, the one that he wrote when he was in prison, called um, Terrifying Thoughts and Horrible Feelings, or worse that effect, because he's got awful, scrupulous OCD, and he's just plagued with, like, horrific thoughts and images all the time. He can't feel the love of God because he's so desperately wrangled. And yet he, he shows us what it is to go on a journey of healing and find the love of God at the end of the road. Like, this is a few examples of people who have mental health problems who have said something about the love of God, which I kind of find quite inspiring. I feel quite inspired now <laughs> by the little ramble. I've inspired myself. <laughs> Thanks, so it's a great question. Fantastic, Will. This is, this is, there's so much here, isn't it? It's fantastic. What I'd love us to do, um, before Will yeah, kind of zones yeah. in um, uh, on a little bit of a, on a particular subject, I'd love us on our tables just to feedback. There are some internal processes here who want to go away for a week and just process what you just heard. Uh, there are some external processes here who want to just process and talk about it. Um, maybe you can work that out on your tables. Just uh, share something that struck you. Uh, something you're going to take away from tonight, what you've already heard, for sort of a minute or so, and then I'll hand over to Will for the rest of the session.